0: All right, this evening we are going to, um, as we talked about two weeks ago, uh, get into the Holy Spirit. We should be able to finish this tonight unless there's a lot of discussion and or questions or interest. Uh, the, the real challenge that we're dealing with is uh, as we go through the humility of God, how God has exercised self-sovereignty um, to such a degree, and some of those things are pretty intense, that we almost come to and say, well, is there, There's other than the declarations of it in God's Word. Uh, is there? Is, does He function is God relating to us in those infinitudes that He has? We're going to be exploring those a lot later. Uh, but one of the easiest ones, very similar to Jesus Christ, where Jesus was pretty easy. I mean, when when the Bible says point blank, He humbled and Himself, to uh, Himself to to the point of death even death on the cross. And so the humility of Christ is very clear. And once we establish that, you would think everything else would just fall in line. That we say, well, if God can exercise such uh, self-control, if he can exercise such uh, uh, limitations on himself, and again, this isn't us limiting God, it's God limiting himself, If he can do this to such a degree that when Christ comes and walks on the earth, that we can say, well, he is truly man and truly God. And yet he has emptied his prerogatives and that relationship with his deity to that degree uh, to become man and to engage God as one of us, yet without sin. And so uh, from then on, you might say, well, everything else is a manageable comparison that is none of the other expressions of God's humility can measure up to that, or do measure up to that. There, there's is not not there. I mean, that's the that is the extreme illustration, the highest expression of God's uh, sovereignty over who He is and and His attributes. So when we come to the Holy Spirit, this is probably the second most clear illustration of the Holy Spirit's presence of humility in the deity. And so the question is, and the question I address here is, is the Holy Spirit irresistible? Because that is one of the key elements of Calvinistic doctrine, whether you're a true Calvinist or some mixture of it or influenced by it. Fundamentally, One of the clear indications is that the Holy Spirit work is irresistible and comes upon you without permission. That is, it comes upon you um, with not even really necessarily your knowledge, certainly not your position. Uh, It is forced upon you. And so the position they have is that when you get saved, the Holy Spirit comes and regenerates you, again, without your permission. It just unilaterally does that work in you, so that now, you have to get saved. Because now you've been made new, and of course every new creature will choose to follow after Jesus by faith. And so, the Holy Spirit generates that faith in you. He gives you all of this prior to you expressing any faith in Him, prior to you having any decision in that matter. Um, he does that unilaterally. One side is what unilaterally means. So he does it one-sidedly. He imposes this on each elect person. And so um, this concept that once Holy Spirit is on us, uh, that you know your will is irrelevant, because um, it can only choose evil all the time. And we saw that when we studied. The doctrine of the, the, the impact of the image bearing upon man that that isn't the case, um, yet they demonstrate that their claim is that that is the condition of man, that somehow our will will always choose against man or against God and could never choose good, even though from sin's inception we have a divine quality that we weren't created with, and that was the knowledge of good and evil. So we acquired that, and so our our condition improved. But their statement is very different. So the irresistibility of the Holy Spirit uh, is basically God flexing his muscle, his self, over man. So he negates man's will and overrides it uh, and creates a new person. And so that's the Calvinistic model. The other model we talked about two weeks ago that we're addressing is the Pentecostal or the Charismatic model that also relies upon this concept that the Holy Spirit uh, it overrides men's capacities. That is that if we're really filled with the Holy Spirit, the evidence of that is lack of control. We don't have control over ourselves. So we speak in languages we don't know because it's the Holy Spirit speaking. Uh, we, we have gestures and and things and and so they replace uh being uh do not be drunk with wine but be filled with the holy spirit and they basically say that filled equals drunkenness and so now you're drunk in the holy spirit and so you stagger around you laugh uncontrollably you have all of these and essentially they're coming out of it from the same doctrinal foundation that once holy spirit has has full uh access to you now, a little bit different because Pentecostals don't necessarily exclude you, but really they, they do because they're trying to get you in a state of emptying yourself so the Holy Spirit can take control. So the introduction of Holy Spirit is, you're a little bit involved in that, but the point or the goal is the Holy Spirit has control of you, not you. And again, we have this overriding of the will of men by the agent Holy Spirit. And, uh, and so we don't have control because the Holy Spirit's in control, and everything I do is by the Spirit. And so we have these bizarre behaviors uh, being stated as the manifestation of the Holy Spirit in your life. And with a lot of disregard to scriptures we're going to see tonight. So we have the Bible's teaching on Holy Spirit, and, and that is very clear. And so let's look at several of these passages that we have particularly... Oh, I should say, we're dealing not with all of the work of the Holy Spirit. Okay. We're really focusing in on a handful, and I list them there on the second page in this chapter where we ask the question of these, some of these works, and I give some passages associated with them. And again, I've put these here because these are the ones that are usually listed as unilateral work of the Holy Spirit that he just has to do this. Uh, regardless of whether you're involved or not. And so we have a dependency there that is really, well, if he doesn't do this, I can just throw my hands up and I am not responsible. Because remember, responsibility is based upon authority. If you don't have the capacity and the right to do something, you cannot be held responsible for it, right? And that's in our judicial system even. So if somebody has diminished capacity and they produce something, uh, we say, well, they're not responsible and therefore we don't prosecute them and, and, and put them in prison because they don't have either mental capacity, uh, something along that line. And so we use that today. And so if someone does something, doesn't have control of their emotions we, or their uh, faculties, uh, we talk about well, they're, they're not really responsible, and so we have to have them supervised and cared for, but without, without authority, without that capacity, we don't have responsibility. And so it comes to here. And so they say, well, if, if I'm incapable and only Holy Spirit does it, then I'm not responsible. Similarly, if Holy Spirit is doing it and I don't have any control over it, I'm not responsible for it. Isn't that an easy way out, right? Um, oh, I, I, it's just the Holy Spirit, I can't help it. And so, because you're just a, a puppet, you are, you know, God's got the strings and you're just doing this, uh, and God is responsible. So, when you diminish authority, you diminish capacity, as these teachings do, you remove responsibility. And that's not what we find in Scripture. We find something very different. So we're going to see, is man responsible with regard to these works of the Holy Spirit, or does the Holy Spirit do them uh, irrespective? That is, does he just unilaterally conduct these? And so we have convicting the world. Um, does, does the Holy Spirit do that? Yes. Okay, now that might seem weird. Does he do that for everyone? Yes. Unilaterally? Yes. Without permission? Yes, so I'm not a universal saying that nothing the Holy Spirit does is unilateral. He has said he will convict the world of sin, rights of judgment, but that does not mean that he will regenerate some and not others so they can believe. Because he has died for the world, again, we have the universality of Christ's sacrifice mirrored with the universality of Of spirits work so the spirit does do things in people so I included this because we are not saying that the Holy Spirit's all of his work is by permission all right some things he does unilaterally um, but they are very minimal in terms of what the rest of he does regenerating the believer make Him a new creation, indwelling the believer, sealing the believer, empowering, filling the believer, um, illuminating, guiding, all of these we find are dependent works of the Spirit. That is, there are prerequisites in your life. You have to be willing to allow Him to do these things. You have to invite Him in. And even in the condition and state of having invited Him into your life by making a choice to receive Christ as your Savior, you then have to continue to allow him to do these things so some of these things are one-time events so on one occasion in my life I am inviting Holy Spirit to indwell me so indwelling is a one-time it has a beginning and but continuous the sealing of the Holy Spirit again one time and it is enduring it is not repeated over and over again regeneration. So those three on your list there, the next three after conviction are really one-time events but they are dependent events. That is, they are waiting for you to receive Christ as their Savior and then Holy Spirit will do these things. By your invitation, he'll do these things. And by your invitation only, he will not force himself in the door. Right? Jesus says, I stand at the door and knock. If you open, he will enter and commune with you. And so it is conditional. When you hear the word if, it means you have to do something to have this at work. So those three are, are really singular events that are, have an initiation and a continuation are not repeated. That doesn't mean they go away, and it, but rather it is an indwelling, obviously, is continuing, the sealing is continuing, And the regeneration is a single act that persists. And so we are transformed by the power of the... uh, Your mind is renewed by the power of the Holy Spirit. Then we have the filling and the illuminating and guiding. The last two things on our list there. And these things are predominantly the ongoing ministry of the Holy Spirit, which requires something of us in a repeated manner. As filling is a repeatable thing, in other words... You can be filled with the Holy Spirit today, and then you can resist Him tomorrow. You can uh, confess and repent of whatever it is that you're resisting the Holy Spirit and You can grieve Him and have another filling of the Holy Spirit. So filling uh, is a repeating event. Illumination, that is the opening of the enlightening of our mind to God's Word. That is a repeatable event in God's Word, but it is a dependent event. God doesn't do that uh, irrespective of who you are. And I'm going to take this a step uh, away from your experience to some other people's experience. I even want to contend with you that inspiration is similarly a dependent event. Now, that's a dangerous thing to say, and I didn't list it on here because it's not really part of your experience. But for the authors of Scripture who were inspired by God, were, were they cooperative? Was there something required of them? Or was God's calling to them unilateral? But we and, and therefore they just, and we have this idea that inspiration is God taking over them. And so, you know, they were, and, and in fact, when you hear, see modern people trying to emulate inspiration, that's how they do it. You know, they get into this trance and they they write all this information or they speak all this information someone else writes it. That's what Joseph Smith did. That's what Mrs. White claimed. Um, They they get into this trance state and they're just overtaken by God. That's inspiration. But that is not what we see in God's word. If that were the case in God's word, we would never have any discussion about the style of the independent style of writing. Because if God overrides you, then the style should be the same consistently from Genesis to Revelation, because you aren't part of it. And so one of the things we talk about is that um, God does not um, override that part of man. So he uses the vocabulary, the, the style, the the. Uh, approach, the perspective, um, the experiences, all of those things of the agents he, are, he is using to write his word. And so if we understand inspiration as God, it still is a cooperative. I'm still having to be submissive to the Holy Spirit. I need to be sensitive to him and make sure I write. Now, we're all pro- did prophets have to obey? Yes. Could they disobey is really the question I'm asking, Can a prophet disobey God? Yeah, are there consequences? Sure. We have Jonah is the major one, right? And that was the one God tolerated and then corrected. Uh, It was costly, uh, not only to Jonah, but to a bunch of sailors too, (laughs) who lost their whole cargo in the process. But um, so they could disobey. And there was another prophet that God says, you know, you prophesy this, you go straight home, don't eat anything, don't drink anything, don't do anything in the land of Israel. And another guy comes in and says, oh, God appeared to me and come over here. And and so the guy listened to him because he claimed to be, that God told him this. And so he had a supper with him and God says, no, I told you. That was a false prophet. And you listened to him and and he died. He was killed. God killed him through a lion. And so, um, yes, prophets can be wrong. Um, by disobeying God's Word, and that's why what we have recorded in Scripture um, is a cooperative effort. So even inspiration is a cooperative and not God overriding men, but cooperating. It's intense, but when we come to illumination, that is God's working in our minds with His Scripture so we understand it and apply it, that is the work of the Holy Spirit that we should pray for that to occur and submit ourselves to it, your mind isn't unplugged and disengaged, and now insert new cartridge, that's Holy Spirit. All right, that I that, use cartridge. What, what would be the thing? And that, that's really old, that's like Atari stuff. Um, what do they use now? Thumb drive. New thumb drive, now it's Holy Spirit doing it. No, it's a cooperative. And that requires your cooperation, it requires your permission, it requires your submission. And so we have these three categories really to talk about the uh, work of Holy Spirit in our life, that yes, He does unilaterally convict the world of sin, rise of judgment. Can they resist that? Yes, we talked about that two weeks ago. Okay, So we know they resist that. And in fact, we have it stated point blank on several occasions. So let's uh, press on a little bit. And uh, we know that men resist the gospel. Uh, Stephen says, you resist the Holy Spirit. I mean, he says it point blank. He uses the very word, you resist the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit was convicting these men. He says, you're resisting him uh, and you won't ever stop resisting him. And they didn't, right? So by the end of the thing, Stephen is dead by their hands. Now, praise the Lord, one guy at least out of his audience stopped. It took a lot for God to blind him on the road to Damascus, but he finally submitted to God. Um, But this whole idea of resisting the Holy Spirit is very clear in Scripture. You can resist the Spirit's conviction. In Romans chapter 1, what happens? Huh? All right, man is darkened to the point of what? Yeah, he gives them over, and that's called the reprobation, that we are reprobate, as we are unreachable by God's uh, convicting work to make a choice. And so he has turned them over to their reprobate minds. They have resisted to the point of, of final rejection. We don't want to really explore, well, um, how far do I have to go to that point? Um, <laughs> I, don't, I don't really want to explore it even as a believer to say, well, how far do you have to go? Can homosexuals get saved? Because uh, that's one of the things listed there. Uh, probably, I, I, I pray that that's the case. And we certainly want witness to witness to that community, but to those individuals. I hate using that word community to, to deal with individual sin. And so we want to share the gospel there but that's one of the hallmarks of a society that is moving clearly in that direction. and So we can resist to that point. Well, um, so resistance of, the, of conviction is possible, uh, the unilateral work, so even that one unilateral work, men can oppose it. You can stop it by continuing to reject it, by Resisting it, you can eventually stop it. The whole idea is that God gives you over. And back in Genesis, God says, You know, my spirit will not always contend with men. There is a limit to how much I'm, how many opportunities I'm going to give you. You keep resisting, 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 resisting. One day it can stop. So you can, by your choice, stop the Holy Spirit from even doing His unilateral work, that is, that He does without your permission, but He will stop it if you just keep resisting it. So that's why one of our prayers, really, for the lost is is for the Holy Spirit to continue to convict them. Um, I I don't know of any other prayer you can make for the lost. We pray these prayers for the lost. That sounds like God's... We pray Calvinistic prayers, Okay. Lord please bring them to salvation. That's a Calvinistic prayer. A traditionalist prayer would be Lord please continue to convict them. Because that gives them the opportunity to choose. If we say Lord save them, save them, save them, save them, that's a Calvinistic prayer. You will not find that prayer in the Bible. Nowhere. I've been looking for decades. You cannot find it. Yes, even in college and seminary, I was confronting Calvinists. Say, where's the prayer? We keep praying it. Why do we keep praying this prayer of uh, praying for the lost that they be saved and making it God's fault if they do? You know, God says you'll convict the world. Our prayers that don't stop doing that just because they're resisting you, that's all you can do. And then do your job of confronting them with the gospel, share the gospel with them for sure. But don't pray the Calvinistic prayer, or oh, Lord, bring them to salvation. Unless by that you mean keep convicting them. And so we have uh, the evidence in God's word that this unilateral work, even that, does not override the will of men, it comes upon men. It is not intrusive. That is, it's an external work. Okay? And that's something you're going to hear me talk about. Intruding. The, the, I'm going to use a word I really don't want to use. That the Holy Spirit intrudes in your life. Because that implies that he doesn't have permission. That's why I've entitled this, Our Guest. A guest comes by invitation. An intruder comes without invitation, right? It's against your will. So the Holy Spirit isn't really an intruder. He is a guest. He will come by invitation. How much of your life is penetrated by him is also by invitation, as we're going to see. It's, yes, go ahead. Yes, filling of the Holy Spirit is repeatable. Correct, and we're going to get to that, but that's what we're talking about, but we're not talk- when we're talking about filling, we're not talking about getting more of the Holy Spirit. We're talking about Him filling you. That's where right? Out. It is a repeatable event. It is a repeatable event in the sense of it goes up and down, up and down, up and down, depending upon what environment you put Him in. The indwelling is the presence of the mercury in the thermometer. But how much He fills you, the filling is conditional and it's repeatable. In other words, it's, it can be there or He can just be suppressed down to the bulb if you put them in a frozen environment, right? And a lot of Christians are living in sub-zero temperatures. and That's why they go, well, I don't know what the Holy Spirit's about. Well, that's because you're not spending time in God's Word and among God's people and prayer and righteousness. So, yeah, you've suppressed Him. And, and in those conditions, I would wonder, too, if He's in your life. You know, what do we do with a thermometer that doesn't show any filling? It's busted. I <laughs> go, is this working? Is this thing working? Well, it's sub-zero, you know. And if the only thermometer only goes down to minus 20 and it's minus 30 outside, yeah, it looks like it's broken. Okay. All right, so let's so let's so that's the unilateral work. Still is conditional. You can resist it. Uh, it still has to be responded to, even though it's initiated by God, and this is God's initiation or salvation. And so uh, let's look at some of the other workings of the Holy Spirit. How do the Calvinists respond when you talk about do not quench the Holy Spirit? Because it's like they just that Right. They wipe it they, yeah, it's total the, the, Calvinists think, the question is how do the Calvinists respond when we go to the statement of Stephen that you resist the Holy Spirit, the statement of do not quench and, and we haven't gotten to yet and the statement of do not, re, do not uh, grieve him. Uh, we haven't gotten to that too. How do they respond to that And I deal with that in in a little paragraph in here where we talk about their statement is, well, you are irresistibly converted. You're regenerated by the Holy Spirit irresistibly. In other words, you don't have any choice. But then now that you are a new person, now you have a choice. You have to be responsive. Okay, And it makes no logical sense at all. And that's what I contend. Here, a a wicked, unbeliever, sinner uh, whose mind is against God, by their definition, this is the condition of the person, that prior to salvation, you cannot do anything good. That's what Calvinists believe. You are incapable of, of doing good and of trusting in God. Incapable. Not that you won't, but you can't. And then, once the Holy Spirit regenerates you from that condition, in that condition, the Holy Spirit comes in unilaterally, boom, He does this work without your invitation, without your cooperation. He makes you a new creature. Now you are going to trust in Jesus Christ. Somehow now, your will is revived. And now you have to cooperate, but you're cooperating as a new person. And it, it simply isn't consistent if Holy Spirit's work of regeneration is without your permission, and then somehow now that I'm regenerated, now I can resist Him and will resist Him, is really inconsistent. It's it's illogical. If this person can't, um, then why is this person able to do it post regeneration? Yeah. So there's so that that's that inconsistency that's there. Is it somehow, well, now that I'm a regenerate person, I my will has been enlivened, has been brought uh, awake, and now I have to engage the Holy Spirit, and I should be obedient. But I was completely in, incapable of doing that prior to the Holy Spirit regenerating me. Now that I've regenerated, I have an awakened will. Well, awakened to what? Only to righteousness. And that's why I say, really, perfectionism should be the end result of regeneration. If it's an overwhelming work of the Holy Spirit without your invitation or cooperation, then once you are saved, you should be perfect. You should never sin again. Because Holy Spirit should be just ruling your life. He regenerated you without permission, without cooperation. He should guide you without permission or cooperation. He should, and he will always guide you into truth and into righteousness, right? And and of course the Nazarene, and, and there's other perfectionist doctrines out there that do contend man can become sinless in this world, in this state, in this body. Uh, Paul seems to think otherwise. He calls this the body of sin, of death, uh, who will deliver me from it. And so that's the inconsistency that's there, and there should be perfectionism. If the Holy Spirit overrides the will of man to save him, how can a surrendered will of man to the Holy Spirit now sin? How can the Christian sin? How can we grieve him? How can we resist him? How can we uh, oppose him? Uh, We will always cooperate. Well, we don't even need to cooperate. So again, by removing human participation, we are removing human responsibility. And they'll count. Well, you know, what can I do? You know, I, I, the Holy Spirit. And I've had people say me that to me, and I'm like, you know, so either I'm not a Christian, or the Holy Spirit is 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 leading me to sin a awful lot. Yes. Yeah, and so yeah, you're talking about the unbelievers, even Christians. Use those terminology without understanding. Yeah. Right. The unbeliever hears you say those things, and now it's God's fault. Right? You've made it God's fault. God is responsible because he controls us. And so when the world encounters uh, Augustinian theology, and that's really what Calvinism is. You've heard me say that. A couple of you asked me. Um, All Calvin did was take Augustine's teachings and organize them. That's into his institutes, Calvin's institutes. So, and Calvin himself says this. This is not me projecting anything. Calvin said everything I'm teaching is derived from Augustinian doctrine. So he took St. Augustine, so called St. Augustine's teaching, and systematized it. That's all he really did. So you'll hear me refer to Augustinian because why? because Augustinian predates Calvin by a thousand years or something, Um, uh, uh, several hundred years. And so Catholic doctrine is very Calvinistic because it's Augustinian. Now, are all Catholics Augustinian? Not necessarily. I didn't say that, but majority of their doctrine is built on that. And that's why we call Calvin and Luther reformers. They did not want to Break away from the Catholic Church, they wanted to reform the Catholic Church to go back to Augustinian doctrine, okay and so that's why they're reformers, the the radicals, the 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 disassociated from from Catholicism were the Anabaptists, Waldenses, and people like that. Um, and they were persecuted as well. But the reformers really wanted to do just that, reform Catholicism. and Catholicism had gone under lots of reformations. Internally, these were just rejected because they were too radical, um, because they wanted to go back too far. right? Because Vatican II was a Catholic Reformation. It, they reformed the Catholic Church, and now people could have Bibles. Before, they weren't allowed access to the Scriptures unless they were in the priestly order. Things like that. So we've had re- reforms in the Catholic Church over history. It's just what the Reformers wanted was rejected by... Um, the hierarchy of that day. And so um, so Augustinian, when I say Augustinian, that's Calvinism as well, because uh, all Calvin did was revive Augustinian doctrine and what it implemented. And so, yeah, that's their contention. And so, um, to a degree, it's not completely illogical, um, but because if I have a, a renewed, a regenerated will, now I have the capacity to choose um, but again, what is the doctrine state? The doctrine says, now that you've been regenerated, you will choose to be saved. Okay. Well, that's kind of a weird. That's not really a choice, is it? So I've regenerated you. If 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 every regenerated person now will always get saved because you're one of the elect. You had to be one of the elect to get regenerated. And so that makes God responsible for whether you're saved or not. It was his choice, not yours. And now he's regenerated. Now you really, they say you have a choice, but you don't because everyone who is regenerated will accept Christ as their Savior. Well, if that's the case, then your will really isn't, you're not revived a capacity to have a true will to choose to follow or not follow, you will surrender to Jesus in salvation. And if you follow that through, that means that you should never sin. If you will, and, and they use that word, and it shouldn't even use it because your will isn't involved, if you necessarily will trust in Christ because you've been regenerated, then you necessarily should walk in the Spirit from that point forward, and you should have perfectionism. So I, I think it's illogical and and it's inconsistent, and I point that out in that one paragraph. Yes. All right. Um, let me just say first that the question uh, or the challenge—I I know other people can't hear the podcast can't hear that—is that um, Calvinists distinguish between choice and will and don't associate them. Um, Calvinists are expert semantics people. They will change words and manipulate them. Um, they will—they will put themselves into a pretzel. To, it's circular stuff, and, and that's, what's, that's what we're trying to do here. Is This really isn't an anti-Calvinism work. This is a here's what traditionalism, uh, how it explains what's going on. That's really what I'm writing. I'm, I'm trying to write a positive statement um, because of all of the mess. I, I'm not here to address every Calvinist bizarre argument. Other books have done that. Um, What Love Is This is a good example. There's others that have written uh, counter-Calvinism. What I found lacking is any statement in a positive sense of, well, what is the traditionalist view of how these things work? What are the mechanics of, of our relationship with God under your position? Because you're not Calvinist, you're not Arminian, so how does it work? And so I'm not really here to fix every and address every Calvinist thing. I, I make mention of that one thing, but I really want to press into what is our responsibility now. If God has limited himself and limited the Holy Spirit, is this Holy Spirit God? Yes. That makes every infinitude that possesses by God is possessed by the Holy Spirit. Right? That's why he can be resident in everybody, because of the... Capacity of God to have omnipresence. That's why he can empower you, because of the capacity of God to have omnipotence. But does he exercise that to its infinity? No. He diminishes himself, and that's called humbling. I'm using the word humble for that. He is exercising self-restraint. He holds it back. And we see Holy Spirit doing this, And so you think, man, if Holy Spirit fills me, bam, he's going to have complete control over me and I can just coast into heaven. And that should be the case if Augustinian doctrine is correct. If he is completely irresistible because he has all knowledge, he has all power, he has all presence, he he, has authority, he can just overwhelm us and, and guide us, but that is not how God created us. And as not the principle by which God functions in us. And so Holy Spirit is God in us. Emmanuel, Jesus Christ is God with us. Okay? Spirit is God in us. And so, God in us, well, he comes in by permission. But even while he's in us, he doesn't just go room to room and do what he wants. He will not override your will. If you close a door and say, well, you can have this common area, but this closet and that room are off limits, then the Spirit's not going to go in there, other than to say why. He'll sit in the common area and challenge you. That's called conviction. Sometimes it uses sermons to do that, or your Bible study that day, or your prayer time, or just fellowship with somebody, and you get convicted. Um, he'll convict you and, and he'll knock on those little doors inside. You've let him in the entry door. But there are other doors in your life where you don't want the Holy Spirit. You know, you want, you want the Holy Spirit in charge of your entertainment? He'd love to be in that room. He knocks on that door. Do you want the Holy Spirit in there? Do you want the Holy Spirit at the workplace? Do you want the Holy Spirit in, in, in all these various areas? Is he in different relationships? Um, and so. That's the concept of filling, is that, um, and so when we talk about resisting, we talk about grieving, we talk about uh, quenching, uh, Holy Spirit makes all these infinitudes that he is because he's God, and diminishes them, in appearance it looks like, well, he can only exercise as much as we let him. In appearance it looks like we have control over God, but that is not the case. God controls himself so that we have self-determination. We have our freedom, our liberty, including privacy. The problem is, now that you've invited the Holy Spirit into your life, you're carrying him with you, right? What does the Bible say your body is? His temple. You're taking him to those places, All right, he's he's, he's well dwelling within you're taking those places, and so how does he respond when you take him to an unrighteous place? Well, he's gonna withdraw. Why? Because it is an offense to his holiness, to his righteousness, to his concept of justice, to him. And so I don't want to put myself in a place where where I'm I'm participating or enjoying. Uh, others participating in, in sinful activities, um, not, uh, and, and so um, I'm diminishing him, and he has to withdraw. He doesn't... He could. He's evidence that he could strike you dead, right? Fear fell upon him after the lying to the Holy Spirit. And so it, that was to communicate a principle that, listen, what you do with your body... You're taking Spirit with you, Holy Spirit with you, while you're doing it. So what you're setting your eyes on, you're exposing Holy Spirit to it, and we don't think about that. We're taking our guests there. How do you behave at your house when you have guests? If I come and I'm going to spend, none of you invited me, but but you say, oh, your wife is gone. You're tearing up her bedroom. Come at our house, and we'll feed you and let you sleep there while you're doing all that. Um, And I didn't, it's okay, because I probably wouldn't have taken you up on it. Um, But, uh, and I come in as your guest. How are you going to behave while I'm there? Are you going to be natural, normal? You should. (laughs) All right. Um, No, you're you're not. I've had guests, and I remember telling my guests, these are our guests. Treat them well. You know, I don't expect. To be treated like a member of the family, Um, but children will treat me that way. They'll come up and jump on you and, you know, whatever. They'll tend to do that. They are less inhibited from social expectations. But if someone gives me a guest, you're going to set out the nice, you know, we have the everyday everyday plates, then we have the nice plates. Well, pastors coming, I get the nice plates out. Um, And if we think of the Holy Spirit as our guest, suddenly we start thinking differently of how we're living because I'm taking him with me. And are we grieving him? Notice he doesn't say he leaves, he's grieved. So if I came to visit you and you put, and we sat down and because I'm staying at your house because my house burned down or something and you invite me in your home and, and you just click on the TV and we're watching inappropriate stuff, um, you're, I'm going to be grieved. This is how you live. This is what you think is entertainment. This is completely inappropriate. You know, when I deal with young people, we don't have a lot of those right now. And and I get on their phone. I hear the music they're listening to. I was like, that grieves me. Does that mean I hate them? And I'm going to No, it makes me really sad. And that's what we're doing, with the Holy Spirit, when we drag Him into that. And that's why we have to keep that. I have Holy Spirit I'm taking with me everywhere I go and everything I do. Am I grieving him? And then quenching him is that idea of I'm diminishing his capacity to work in me. And it sounds, I even use the word there, I am diminishing him. But he has already taken the step of humbling himself to, in, to indwell me. <laughs> that's an incredible... Act of humility for God to say, I'm going to come live in you. I'm going to become your guest in your life. Why? Why would God want to be exposed to all the garbage that I expose Him to by walking around in life in this nasty world? His presence there is such an incredible act of His humility. And he has to, it's, it's evident that he um, just recoils. It, it, that's that word of grieving and quenching is both the, the same concept. It's not that he leaves us and we have to get him back. It's that he just withdraws into, because we have pushed him out of those areas of our life. And when we open those areas to him, when we, and that's what really the Christian walk of sanctification, all those instruction in God's word, which is most of the New Testament is written to Christians, is to get you to open your life up so Holy Spirit has liberty to work throughout your life. So He can work in your finances, He can work in your entertainment, He can work in all of your relationships, He can work in you at work, He can work at you uh, in everything. Not just at church. This shouldn't be the only place we're seeking the Holy Spirit's filling. I want the Holy Spirit to have, guide me, to illuminate me, to uh, empower me, so that wherever I go and all that I'm doing, I'm going to strive after righteousness, I want to do what is pleasing to God, and I'm going to be a representation of His kingdom. Can we do that perfectly? I would love to think so. You certainly have the power to do that because you have access to the Holy Spirit's power. But you still have a preserved, intact will (laughs) that has the freedom of self-determination and the authority to do that. And you might say, well, now I have competing authorities in my life. Yes, that is the warfare. Because you have your will of your flesh and you have the spirit in you and they don't always match, do they? Your flesh is weak, but you paid a lot of attention. We all do. And so we end up grieving Holy so Spirit, We end up quenching him. We don't. It's not driving him out it is diminishing his role. And now he's not going to open up your mind to the scripture. scriptures. Scriptures are going to be completely boring and irrelevant to you. When I hear someone say, Oh, scriptures are boring, I'm like, okay, you're grieving the Holy Spirit, because that's the Holy Spirit's job. And if you're not getting the scriptures and applying them, there's something wrong, not with the Holy Spirit, but with you. Yes, Holy, it might, you can blame the Holy Spirit because he has withdrawn. His influence, not left, he has just gone to his room. Okay? If I'm a guest in your home and you got inappropriate entertainment that I'm offended by, um, what am I gonna do? I'm gonna, I, I can say this is wrong or whatever, I could try to make that, but ultimately, if you just wanna keep watching it, I'm gonna go to my room. And you won't see me. Not just that day, but any day that you have your entertainment on, right? I'm just gonna be in my room. And that's essentially what the Holy Spirit does, and that's quenching him. You have said you're not really welcome in this environment. Okay? And so, and that can be in, in the kitchen, that can be in whatever room of your life. And and as is, is your guest, is your Holy Spirit guest welcome throughout your whole life? That's really the challenge. The only reason he is not there is because he has already restrained himself under the principle of making his work in your life conditional on you. And that's intense. How much God has to have self-restraint to dwell in me and then limit himself to whatever I let him do? Wherever, because I'm the one putting dragging my body and directing my eyes wherever they're going in my mind and my ears and things like that, and that's why we need to be careful in so many areas of our life is because we're carrying Holy Spirit with you, and that's why Peter or Paul says to the Corinthians, Don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit, which is in you, have of God, and you are not your own, therefore glorify God in your body, and so. This is the temple of the Holy Spirit, and if you wouldn't do it in church, don't do it anywhere. If you won't say it to the preacher, don't say it to anybody. Let all of our conversation and our walk be evident that we know the Holy Spirit is within me. And if you want Him to really have access to everything, you know, if we really have, want to have the attitude, of the Holy Spirit, Mikasa uh, Sukasa, you know, this temple is yours. You can go anywhere you want, um, and that includes opening drawers and looking in cupboards and things like that, and and under rugs. You know, oh, sweep it under the rug, right? That's the old adage. Um, can he do all that? Does he have your permission to do that? Because he won't do it without your permission. Does he have your permission? And he won't be. Uh, he won't be filling you, where you put him into environments that are offensive to him. And that's our responsibility. That's our responsibility. And because it's our capacity. And, and, but what I'm saying is that for Holy Spirit to do his work requires our obedience. We have to be not, now the indwelling, the the regeneration, all that, is a singular submission. I submit to Jesus Christ, I'm trusting in Him. And that is a permanent condition. Uh, and We could talk about tested faith and security. We're going to do that a little bit later. Um, maybe it belongs in this chapter, I don't know. The idea that of the permanence of the Holy Spirit. Um, Hebrews says you've tasted of Him. And that's kind of a scary thing. Can you taste of the Holy Spirit and then lose Him? That is, Is He just a... a is he just there for a visit? Can Holy Spirit be in your life just as a visitor and not as a a house guest? Okay, and so um, you know, so I have visitors come and they're welcome in my home, um, but I expect them to leave after a while. Uh, but then I have house guests. You know, Elizabeth is well. Actually, she's kind of a renter, but uh, I have house guests, right? That have liberty to live there. And does God, does God have that? So it requires something of God, the Spirit, in terms of self-restraint, to come and take residence in your flesh and be dependent, his work is dependent upon your will. And, and that makes it sound, most Calvinists will come, you make man in charge of God, that we limit God. And that is their accusation to me all the time. You make weak, you make God weak. And I'm like, no, God made himself that way. And that is the greatest expression of sovereignty there is when God controls himself. When God says, I will grant you privacy, I will grant you will, your freedom, um, I'll grant you authority, you know, you subdue the earth, you have dominion here, I'll walk away and give you that dominion. That's God controlling himself. And so, yes, it appears if you look at it the wrong way, man is controlling God. But in fact, God controlled himself to allow man capacity, authority, liberty, and hence also responsibility. Okay, and so that's what we're trying to communicate here. Um, well, uh, you have more questions? You want to deal with this one more week? Correct. The stories. Right. You hear the My testimonies of people. Well, no but again, a Calvinist will just point out and say, well, that's the post-regeneration event. So there's a regeneration that happens, and then you trust in Christ, and that's the transformation happens in your sanctification. So they'll say that's the beginning of your sanctification, not your justification. So justification is this regenerated act. You'll then trust in Christ in direct result of regeneration, which you didn't choose, Now you will have faith trust in Christ and now your sanctification begins and that's where you have the transformations occurring in your experience that people are seeing. Um, But again, what happens then when they walk away? When they have sin in their life? That's the real challenge. Those passages say you you can quench the Holy Spirit, you can resist the Holy Spirit, you can grieve the Holy Spirit, tells us, I think in, in clear terms, that God has not overridden your authority over yourself. Even if you have made the declaration of submission to invite Holy Spirit in, even in that condition, you might say, well, he, can, he now I gave him permission to take over everything. Well, that's not how it works. Not because I said so, but because God said so. So he even as a even as a resident in you, he still. He is still with your permission to come in and enter your life. Still functions and honors that authority of self determination that he put there when he created you, because it's part of defining what you are as a human. That makes you human. And I'm gonna. Uh, I I shouldn't. It's a quarter after. Okay. I would, I'm even going to contend that in heaven, you still have self-determination. That you still have a choice in heaven um, on a daily basis. Uh, and we are not... Um, that God will never violate that. Uh, this is our location of dominion. When we get into heaven now, he has dominion. So there's going to be uh, a greater... Uh, in a different environment, but we still, still, God still has part of the definition of man is, as the image bears, And that's why the Bible says we will rule with him. The only way we can rule with him if we maintain self-determining authority. Not we will be ruled by him, we will rule with him big difference and it means that he does fundamentally the definition of being human is to have this image and this liberty of will is what it means all right let's pray gone really late and we'll, we'll we'll revisit this in two weeks remember next week uh, we are having our celebration of resurrection in the evening and so in two weeks we'll get back to this i i hate to do this this is now what we're doing for holy spirit week one week on one week off and also next week I will get you the next chapter, which is really long. So maybe I will get it for next Lord's Day, week ahead, two weeks ahead, something like that. It's a really long chapter. It's really hard stuff. Um, it's going to take three chapters to finish, uh, and, and that, but the, the introductory chapter and the first element of it is long. So let's pray. Lord God, we you thank you for your love for us and your willingness to humble yourself to take residence in our lives while we're still in this flesh. And we marvel at such a work that you do on us, and we cannot cease to give thanks to you. Lord, we are sorry for the places we've taken you and grieved you and quenched you. We pray for your forgiveness, and we pray that as we've convicted tonight of those places and things that we've exposed you to that we um, might choose differently in the days to come. Lord, we want you to have liberty in our lives to work, to direct us and guide us, to illuminate us, to to, uh, fill us, empower us, to serve your kingdom. And Lord, if there are parts of our lives that we are holding back and not giving you access to, and demanding uh, privacy, and Lord, um, just continue to convict us of that, and help us to be um, sensitive to that, and and persist in that. Lord, we invite you again to uh, not just come into your life, we know you are in us as believers, but that you might have full reign, rule in our life, uh, as we permit, and we pray we might uh, desire that, all that we are, and on every occasion in which we find ourselves. In Christ Jesus' name, amen.